All right, everyone. The gods of Apple Corporation have decided that it's 7.30 in the p.m. here, so we'll begin on time. In the name of the Father, and the Son, of the Holy Spirit, amen. O blessed Father, we who are your children and rejoice in the resurrection of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, ask you to continually pour your Holy Spirit into our hearts, that we will never fear anything but sin, and look forward to the bright promise when you would triumph over death in his mighty name. And ask that we, as we form our minds according to your holy will, you get many graces to our Holy Father, Pope Francis. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. St. Peter, in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. All right. Today's class is called The Resurrection and the Papacy. You might have called it The Resurrection and St. Peter, because St. Peter becomes the central figure along with our Lord. And while this class is not going to be a total theology of the papacy, my guess is some questions might address some other finer points. It's really talking about what the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ means for the papacy as such, for the office given to Christ by, given to St. Peter by Christ that lives now in the bishops of Rome. That being said, it would be worthwhile to do a little bit of sort of papal theology. I want to set it up by first reading a passage from the Gospel of St. Luke, chapter 5. All right, chapter 5. This is Luke, chapter 5, verse 1 through 11. Again, Luke 5, verses 1 through 11. While the people pressed upon him, upon Jesus, to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret. He saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had ceased speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a great shoal of fish. And as their nets were breaking, they beckoned to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he was astonished, and all that were with him, at the catch of fish which they had taken. And so also were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. Henceforth you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. The call of Peter to be a disciple. A couple of things to make note of, all right? Jesus gets from the land into the boat. They let down their nets and they pull it up. The nets are tearing. 
and the Simon Peter confesses his sinfulness, and the Lord gives him the universal call to make disciples. Okay. Now, we're going to get to the papacy more specifically. This is the Gospel of St. Matthew, chapter 16, verses 13 through 20. Again, Matthew 16, verses 13 through 20. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, little side note, be mindful of the lake of Gennesaret and the Sea of Tiberias and the Sea of Galilee are all the same thing, right? So in the Bodhis in Galilee, not far from Nazareth. Now he's in Caesarea Philippi, way northern Israel, almost to the border. Well, really, what we now, it's in the, it's right to the border of what we call modern Syria. Very, so he's way north. He's at the very edges of the Jewish homelands, as it were. And at this place named Caesarea Philippi, named after one of the Caesars, right? So he's not in the Jewish heartland. He's right on the edge in between the Jewish heartland of the people of God and the nations, the Gentiles, the pagans. All right. He asked his disciples, who do men say the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah. Side note, Bar, it means son of. Right? Ancient Jews didn't have last names. At least they were referred to son of so-and-so. Right? So Simon Bar-Jonah, Simon, son of Jonah. Right? Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one he was the Christ. So he's in Caesarea Philippi, this boundary between the people of God and the Gentiles, the nations, the pagans. He asks, who do people say that I am? All the various answers. It is Simon Peter. And notice, St. Matthew calls him Simon Peter before he's actually been given, right? His given Jewish name is Simon, Shimon. He is given the name Kepha. Right, Kepha is the Aramaic rock, or Peter, Petro. Right, Peter is the Greek word for rock. So, flesh and blood. You can get this yourself. My father, you've received divine revelation. He, Jesus is saying, you, Simon, son of Jonah, have received divine revelation to confess that I am the son of the living God. And so I name you now rock. And on this rock, right? The rock of the confession of faith. The rock of divine revelation through 
this person. I will build my church. The gates of hell don't prevail. I give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. What you bind is bound. What you loose is loosed. Then he tells all the disciples, not to speak about the right, the particular power to bind and loose given to the apostle Peter. Now, Peter has left everything to follow Christ, receives this office amongst the other apostles. There are many other instances, right? Peter, James, and John are taken to be with Christ during a number of special moments. Now we're coming to the summit of the life of Christ, right? What I'm going to read now is Luke 22, 31 through 38. Luke 22, 31 through 38. So this is the Last Supper after the institution of the Eucharist, after Judas has gone out, after the feet have been washed. So Luke 22, starting verse 31. Now just before that, just before Jesus said to all the apostles, right, as my, in fact, let's go to, let's go to Luke 28. You are those who have continued with me in my trials. And as my father appointed a kingdom for me, so I appoint a kingdom for you. Right? To those apostles, father appointed a kingdom for me, I appoint a kingdom for you. That you may do what? Eat and drink at my table in my kingdom. The mass is the center of the kingdom. And sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. That's interpreted both the authority of the apostolic church to judge. And then also a gift given to the apostles and the end of all time. Now verse 31. He turns, Jesus does. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, right? Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, you shall strengthen your brethren. And as Peter said to him, I am ready to go to prison and to die with you. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the, the cock will not crow this day until three times you deny that you know me. Now see, this is the specific prayer of Christ for the faith of Simon Peter. Satan will challenge Simon Peter specifically. And so Christ prays for him specifically that his faith does not fail. And when he rises from his moral fault, right after that he predicts moral fault. 
That is why, all right, morally scandalous popes are very easily explainable. They're human beings, right? How can a pope do such terrible things? They're human beings, right? Their salvation is dependent. Christ does not promise them that they will all be saved. He leaves their free will. Christ will never promise, all right, I pray for you that no matter what happens, you'll be saved. No, he'll never take away your free will. But he prays that that office of Peter will always, always, always protect the faith as such. That's the gift that is given. Now we need to move directly to the resurrection because that's the point of all of this. Now we're going to move to the gospel of St. John because Peter received, right, keys to the kingdom after the confession of faith, the prayer that his faith will always be protected even though he will fall morally. Then it's the passion of our Lord. He is arrested. He is crucified. He is buried on that first Sunday morning early before dawn we know this all right the women go out to the tomb the angels say why do you seek the living of the dead he's not here he's been raised behold I've told you they go back and say they've seen him raised from the dead Peter and John run out to the tomb with either Mary Magdalene ran with him or she had stayed there anyways they go in and do not see the empty tomb they see the tomb with the burial cloths and the cloth that covered his head they leave, our Lord appears to Mary Magdalene, right? calls her by name, but says, don't touch me. Then he appears to the two disciples on the road going out to Emmaus and is made known to them in the breaking of the bread, the Holy Eucharist. And then that night he appears to the apostles in the upper room and says, see my hands and my feet. Now that I have revealed to you the Holy Eucharist, you touch. Before the Eucharist, don't touch. After the Eucharist, touch. Breathes and gives the sacrament of confession, whose sins you forgive are forgiven them. A week later, the apostle Thomas comes and put your hands in my side and your fingers in my side and do not be unbelieving, but believe. Now, in the Gospel of St. John, he accounts that vision of St. Thomas a week after the resurrection. Then the Apostle John writes this. This is John 20, verse 30 and 31. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Right? What do you believe? He rose from the dead. That's where you have life. Then, after saying there's many other deeds, he goes and writes a deed, right? This is John chapter 21, verse 1. Now, it is not stated in the Gospel of St. John how long after the Resurrection Sunday this occurs. It's somewhere inside of 40 days, right? But it starts like this. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, right? The Sea of Galilee. Remember, the angels tell them, tell his disciples they shall go to Galilee. There they will see him. Behold, I have told you. Now they see him in Jerusalem, but they have obeyed the angelic command and have gone to Galilee. 
He revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called Didymus, right? Thomas the Doubter. Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, all right? Read here, Bartholomew, Nathaniel and Bartholomew, the same person. The sons of Zebedee, James and John. And two others of his disciples were together. That's always the fact, like, they don't matter, or so it's not known who those are. It's presumed that St. Luke is one of those two, but it's not, it's not certain. Two others are there. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. So it is presumed that they're there in Galilee waiting for Jesus and just trying to figure out what to do till he shows up. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the beach, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Right? What does this sound like? It sounds like Easter Sunday. It's at the break of day. There's Jesus, but they don't recognize. And then Jesus said to them, Children, have you any fish? They answered him, No. This is also very fascinating. Grown men see Jesus but don't recognize him. He calls them children and they respond. So it's often, did he appear to them somehow in the guise of a father or a father, an older fatherly figure, they would respond thusly. He said to them, cast the boat, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it and now they were not able to haul it in for the quantity of fish. The disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord, right? So John the it is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his clothes, for he was stripped to, for work, and sprang into the sea. Right? He's going to jump in and swim, but he's going to make sure he's dressed properly to see Jesus first. Right? The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but only about a hundred yards off. When they got out of land, they saw a charcoal fire there with fish lying it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the nets were not torn. All right. Notice again, it's a reversal. Jesus goes in the, from the beginning. He's on the land into the boat catch into deep water. They pull up. Nets are tearing. Peter falls down afraid. Now, they're in the boat. Jesus is on solid ground. And Jesus just says, the other side. Not even anything terrifying about it. Just the other, not even, just the other side. They're only 100 yards offshore. They're not even that far from him. And when Simon Peter realizes it, he doesn't fall down afraid. He jumps in to go get him. And then when they haul the net ashore, there's two things. Jesus already has fish, but he asks for some of their fish. And they haul in the net. Before in the first ring, their nets are breaking. There's so many fish. Now they're not breaking. And they know exactly how many fish are there. 
Now, see mighty things in this. Before the resurrection, Jesus is walking through us with the tumults of life and says, go deep. After the resurrection, Jesus has gone deep. You just have to do your, or just go on the other side, man, not even that hard. And he's not in the tumult, he stands on solid ground. We're still in the boat, in the tumult, in the waters. He's on solid ground. Before Peter has to be afraid and walks on water, now whatever, he just jumps right in. Before the resurrection, it's this nebulous hall that breaks our nets. We don't have the capacity before it. After the resurrection, I know each of you by name. 153. There's a famous Bible scholar done all kinds of research on what does the 150 was the known nations on earth at that time or the number of races on earth at that time so on and so forth and someone said like what's the thing you most worry about when you see the Lord Jesus he said well my sins of course but also I'm afraid that after writing all these books about what the number 153 means Jesus will say to me it's because there were 153 fish right? <laughs> Right, and then that's the idea that it's, we know you, we, the number. That's the, the, the biblical, the, the church father's commentary I hold to personally is it's, it's, the number is not what is important except for that he knows each one. When you get hauled in, in the, when I am lifted up from the earth, I draw all people to myself. I know my sheep and mine know me. But here's the thing. I've got Jesus in his preaching and resurrection has gained his own fish, right? He's got some there and bread. He's done his own bit and Jesus does his own work. But we also do our work. Do you, I have fish. Do you have any fish? The, bring it here, right? My work is joined with your work, not in fear, but in love. All right, it continues. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Breakfast, most important meal of the day, as we all know from the Bible, right? Now, none of the disciples dared to ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Feed my lambs. Jesus said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he was said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Okay, we're going to pause here. This is the redemption of Peter. Three times denial. I don't know the man. I curse. I don't know him. I don't know him. I don't know him. 
Three times, yes, Lord, I love. Yes, Lord, I love. Yes, Lord, I love. Right? And then notice, <clears throat> feed, tend, feed. Right? Feed, tend, feed. <coughs> feed, tend, feed. In a sense, becomes the rhythm of the life of the papacy. In a sense, the life of the priesthood, feed, tend, feed, feed, tend, feed. Sacraments, doctrine, faith, correction, care, confession, counsel, sacrament, you know, right? Two-thirds of what you should do should be like sacramental spiritual things, and one-third should be administrative pastoral. That's how St. Gregory the Great used to say it. <laughs> two-thirds of my time doing spiritual sacramental things to feed, and then one-third during pastoral administrative things to tend, right? Feed, tend, feed. And it continues. Truly, so he says, Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you fastened your own belt and walked where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will fasten your belt for you and bring it to you where you do not wish to go. This he said to show by what death he was to glorify God. And after he had said this, he said to him, follow me. Now this is the resurrection power given to Simon Peter, given to the office of Peter, given to the papacy. The power to bind and loose and withhold and hold the true confession of faith. Who do people say the Son of Man is? Is made joyful and firm through resurrection power. You will haul fish ashore to be with me. You are in the boat. I am on the land, but you will get there. And there is the moment where each person who office, you know, holds the office of Peter will have to get out of the boat, jump into the waters, and go to the shore. And the boat will get there after him. This is the office of Peter that has to be redeemed by feed, tend, feed, feed, tend, feed. Right? Popes get them into trouble when they do other things than feed, tend, feed. And you don't get to go where you want, right? Popes tend to be elected older in life. When you're younger, you could go where you wanted. When you're older, another will dress you and take you where you don't want to go, all right? And that's the death by which you will glorify God. And then, of course, that last phrase, follow me. Now, I read last week what he comes in, you know, what about that other apostle, Lovera, and Jesus, and, but don't worry about him, right? Don't worry about him or him. Or you follow me. You alone, right? And the men who hold your office will alone stand before the abyss of God. And receive the grace to recognize what other people do not see. I have conversations with you that I do not have with any other human being. 
and you have to tend and feed, or feed and tend and feed, and feed and tend and feed, and you have to not rely on flesh and blood, but my heavenly Father. And Satan will demand to sift you like wheat again and again and again and again, but I pray that your faith doesn't fail. So I will close with the last passage. I read this to you last week. This is the second letter of St. Peter, chapter 1, starting on verse 1. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours in the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises, that through these you may escape from the corruption that is in the world because of passion and become partakers of divine nature. Here I am, I'm Peter, I have the keys. The Heavenly Father told me, right faith. I have the keys to bind and loose. I got to go on the mountain of transfiguration. I was there in the garden. Yeah, I fell. Jesus personally redeemed me, both in the resurrection and like face to face, right? Confession directly with Jesus in a sense. And I've, but you've got a faith equal with mine which is the knowledge of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, into the life of the Lord to become partakers of divine nature. Right? Then he goes, we talked about in the vocation talk last week, or the rhythm of how you support your vocation. Right? For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith. Which is, again, such a fascinating in the Protestant dialectic. What? Yes, supplement your faith. Right? Supplement your faith with virtue, virtue with knowledge, knowledge with self-control, self-control with steadfastness, steadfastness with godliness, godliness with brotherly affection, brotherly affection with love. For if these things are yours and abound, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Whoever lacks these things is blind and short-sighted, has forgotten that he was cleansed from his old sins. Right? Peter would know all about that, right? Mm -hmm. Therefore, brothers, be the more zealous to confirm your call and election. For if you do this, you will never fail. So there will be a richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And then here's the, the winning quote for the papacy. This is 2 Peter 1, verses 12 through 15. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these things, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. Right? You know this, my job, to remind you. I think it right, as long as I'm in the body, to rouse you by way of reminder. Mm -hmm. Since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ has showed me, and I will see to it that after my departure you may able to be, be able to recall at any time these things. All right? 
This is him talking about the office of Peter. You are able at any time to recall these things because I have an office that is established by Christ and I will provide for. There is what we call, St. Peter didn't call it this, we call it a magisterium. What the Apostle St. Paul called a traditio. I received what I hand on to you. Right? Remember the word tradition comes from the Latin word traditio, which means to hand on. Right? Ego vobi ad vos traditio codabo ad meam. I hand on to you what I received. That's why if an angel from heaven should preach to you any gospel other than the one we preached, do not believe him. St. Peter will continue in this very... I've got to find the quotation right. Verse 16. We do not follow cleverly devised myths when we need to do the power, right? Clever devising has no place here. It is our duty to remind. As a sidebar, that was the, when there was the dogmatic definition of papal infallibility. What was written to the dogmatic definition of papal infallibility, it says, the Spirit of God was not given to Peter to reveal some new doctrines, but to saintly safeguard and steadfastly hold on the faith delivered by Christ to the apostles. Right? You don't get infallibility to make stuff up. No cleverly devised what not. Right? That is the eternal, right? follow me. So that is the resurrection power of the papacy. We're at 35 minutes. I'm sorry I went a little long, but... From that point, I would happily take any questions generally or specific about what I have said or about your understanding of the papacy as such. When you speak of infallibility, is there a certain thing that the Pope does that's infallible and other things not? Super yes. The Pope does virtually nothing infallibly. All right. A Pope may teach infallibly on matters of faith and morals according to the scriptures and tradition when he declares so by a solemn statement. Right. So take the infallible definition of the Immaculate Conception. Right. I, you know, Pope Pius IX, here do solemnly declare and infallibly define to be held by all the Christian faithful that as is intimated in the sacred scriptures is held by the fathers of the church and all the saints. And then St. Cyril says this and St. So-and-so says this and St. So-and-so right, is taught by the ecumenical council of such and such and such and such. That Holy Mary, ever virgin, was received by singular grace of God from all stained original sin at the moment of her conception. Boom. Right. That's infallible teaching. 
which is different from, um, I feel like I should be able to, yeah, well, comments on this, all right, which is different from, yes, we should all recycle. Maybe we should all recycle. I'm not saying we shouldn't. That's not an infallible pronouncement, all right? You say something infallible every time you say, Jesus Christ is present in the Blessed Sacrament. Then you're saying something infallible, all right, right? But the Pope only declares infallibly according to that tradition and formulaism, all right? And there can be, like, again, there can be serious errors when, again, there was a very bright commentator who said at the time of the First Vatican Council saying, now that we have defined papal infallibility, we shall have to deal with the worst of all heresies, which is people who believe that every word that dribbles out of the Pope's mouth is to be believed. Right? So that when St. Pius XII gives an address to the uh, uh, mothers of Rome on breastfeeding techniques, that is not divine revelation. All right. All the more so if a pope signs his name to a document that says, quote, the plurality of religions is a good willed by God. F false. That's wrong. He wrote his name to it. What does that mean? He's wrong. When the pope sits in the, at the pulpit at the ordination mass of priests and says, fidelity to the truth does not mean God becoming the guardian of certain doctrines and dogma. False. That is exactly what it means. Right? And you can quote any number of scripture passages and ecumenic councils and manuscripts that what you have said is wrong. Okay. Now to get to your point more specifically, the Pope teaches infallibly when he declares to do so as such. You can't miss it. He'll say, I infallibly teach such and such. Now, a pope might also, again, uh, John Paul II did not say, my document, the Church and the Eucharist, is an infallible document. But everything he wrote in there is to be believed because it's utterly consonant with Scripture and tradition. So you must believe it. He didn't declare it. In, that's the other half of this. Right? But it was always to be understood. And this might be taking your question further, but I feel like it's always hanging in there. Especially because we have a Pope currently who says all kinds of silly things. Tons. I mean, honestly, almost once a week. And not just like, right, you don't like his politics, who cares? Pope, people have disliked the Pope's politics. I mean, you want to talk... Pope Pius X railed again. He didn't want to train inside the Vatican. He called it the mechanical Jacobin that will make us destroy the family. He hated trains. Fine, whatever. He can hate trains. You don't have to hate trains. Right? That's not the point. But the point is, when the, Pope says, when the Pope says something about politics or economics, you say, great, whatever. You think on it, ponder it. He has no authority in that realm. When he says something about faith and morals, what to believe or what to do, he is utterly bound by his predecessors, by the ecumenical councils, by the sacred scriptures. When Pope Liberius writes a letter saying, Jesus is not God, then the faculty at the University of Paris say, wrong. 
holiness. Take it back. And he does. Okay. Because it just doesn't dribble out. Does that make sense what I'm trying to say? Okay. I'll let you ask some questions in case I get too ranty and ravey. What is the single most important thing that the Pope does? The, oh, in my, this is my opinion. Right. I think St. Peter is pretty clear. He reminds people how to live the Christian life. Now, in the contemporary world, because now the church is much more huge than when St. Peter wrote that line, it's clearly, in my opinion, to remind the brethren, the bishops, the most important thing that the Pope does is pick bishops. Which is a nearly impossible task because the world is huge. How can you know all these people? But the best you can do is know the people who help you pick these people and do the best job to pick bishops that you can. The most important thing the Pope does is pick and discipline bishops. And is that because that is part of protecting the faith? Yes, that's part of, that's what he does to remind. How do we remind people to supplement their faith with virtue and so forth? How do we remind people don't go after cleverly devised myths? How do we remind people to nourish their faith in Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God? Well, that's how he does it. In the Acts of the Apostles, all out there, there's all kinds of Jews converting to Christianity say you have to keep the Mosaic Law to be saved. Like, yes, you have to have Jesus to be saved, but you also have to keep the Mosaic Law to be saved. Which, if you're a Jew, is no big deal, but if you're a non-Jew... All of a sudden, you know, you're an uncircumcised 42-year-old man and you say to go to heaven, you've got to be circumcised. You're going to think about that for a minute and you say you can't eat pork anymore and you have to separate your meals like and all this kind of whatnot. It's a, it's a deal. Like, what? Do we, have to, do we have to do? Oh, there's a fight. People know what to do. They all come back to where? Where Simon Peter is. And what, what does it say in the Acts of the Apostles? It's the decision of the Holy Spirit and of us. Right? Famous. It's the decision of the Holy Spirit and of us to do X, Y, Z. Yeah, that's what popes should do. Right? Can we give blessings to a homosexual couple? No, for this reason. Can we have, you know, big thing, the, in the missions there was the big question, can you have mass out of doors? Because for centuries and centuries everyone had churches, now you're in these mission fields. Can you have mass out of doors? We don't think, some say yes, some say yes. You can, in the mission fields in Africa, yes, you can say mass out of doors. All the inside doors people chill out a little bit. Okay. That kind of thing. That's what popes are supposed to do. We're in a weird situation, right? The... Pope John Paul II arose when the whole world was going insane and people in the church were saying all kinds of crazy things. Some of you lived through that. You may not have experienced it as crazy. I don't know what your experience of all of that was, but all kinds of people just went nuts and did all kinds of nutty things. And all kinds of bishops went nuts and did nutty things. And so John Paul II said by the manner of his life, I cannot govern all of this. They won't listen to what I say. So I'm going to get myself on TV as much as possible, get the Knights of Columbus to pay for it, right? And uh, he did. It was brilliant. <laughs> he went to the Knights of Columbus, but what can we do for him? I said, I need to be on TV. Americans know how to do this. Get me on TV. And they did. It's a big old huge fat truck parked next to St. Peter's Basilica with Knights of Columbus on it that projects. It is. It's true. So it was, right? Now they've built a building, but forever it was a big truck. Anyways, and he wandered all over the face of the earth. 
and preached the gospel and said, if anyone wants to know what the gospel is, here it is. And you can listen to me and, and be a Christian and follow the gospel. But he decided that it's just, you'll have to let the structures of the church, right? Because Christ did not promise to save the structures of the church. He promised to save the church, but there's all kinds of, right, Structures, I mean, like there's this diocese here and there's that university there and there's this religious order's mother's house over here. Christ doesn't promise his grace to save any of that. So it is not the duty of the Pope to save all of that. It's the duty of the Pope to make sure people have the gospel, true and untarnished. So to follow up on your example of the blessings of homosexual marriages, so all the German bishops, many of the German bishops did it, and it's out in the public, and it's causing, of course, scandal, the sheep, and uh, it, like the Pope has been silent on it after the first statement. Well, because this gets to a whole other thing, like, does the Pope have to get, right, Cardinal Dolan made this point, does the Pope, like, how many times a week does the Pope have to get up and say the moral law? Once a week, twice, once every other week, once a month. I mean, is it good if the Pope sits down once a week and says, by the way, everyone, you should uh, reserve the sexual act for marriage and you should not leave your husbands and your wives and you should not abort your children and you should not steal money. And like, does he need to do that? Like a little reminder, I mean, he said, no one's confused about what's right or wrong. Now it's a matter of discipline, right? It's not a matter of teaching. We all know. Knowing and agreeing are not the same thing. So now it's, when that priest does that, who is going to administer, right? This is the tend part. Right. Who is going to take that priest out of his parish? But it's bishops who did it, too. So how, isn't he the only one who can chastise? Again, I know there were a hundred parishes in Germany. I know there are bishops that said they would do it. I'm not aware of any that did actually do it. There were a hundred parishes in Germany, which a hundred parishes out of all the parishes is actually shockingly small. It's up to bishops to discipline their priests. It's up to archbishops to discipline their bishops. It's up to the cardinals to discipline their archbishops. It's up to the pope to discipline the cardinals. And you've got a whole worldwide church that can be tough. <laughs> the nice thing we are is you don't have to worry about all that because you know what the faith is. You don't have to wonder what's right or wrong about all that. And the arbiter of what is true in our faith, Scripture and tradition. Scripture and tradition arbits what is the truth. Yes, absolutely. What does blessed Jesus and the sacred scriptures say about embryonic stem cell research? Nothing. All right. Never an idea what it was. I mean, Christ and his divine mind know what it, what it was. But Christ in one year is, by the way, everyone, two millennia from now, you're going to come up with this crazy bit. Don't do it. So that's the clear, yes, you have to take principles, all right? What's a human being? When does a human being become a human being? What can you do to a human being? What can you not do to a human being? And then make an authoritative declaration, especially when it gets hairy or confusing. And yes, the Pope is the one who has the grace from God to do that. Other people are going to be very, very smart, right? There are people who are smarter than the Pope, right? That's also, we assume the Pope is the smartest person. That's almost never been true. 
in history. Maybe in a couple of occasions it was, but not normally. So my wider, my wider point I'm trying to make is when you stand, again, it's a, it's a weird moment. I do not deny for one second we are in a weird moment. But certainties still hold. Right? That resurrection power of Christ still holds. And it is still there in the office of Peter. It is the person who holds holds the office of Peter, who I think this is the wider point, again, stands utter. And then Christ says, follow me. Simon, son of John, my heavenly father revealed it to you. That is terrifying. Like it is wonderful and terrifying because that means that man stands alone before the infinity of, of God and has to resist all the machinations, right? Especially now that the papacy is, right? The downside of John Paul II is he made the papacy important. Everyone cares about it. <laughs> if it was, no one cared about the papacy, right? No one cares about the president of the Evangelical Lutheran Synod says about anything. I mean, does everyone notice the Pope dribbles anything out of his mouth? It's on news, right? Whereas, again, the... So that's, that's, I think, a point that, that's just fascinating in our own time, all right? There's a question. Is it a, like, we live in a weird moment. John Paul made the papacy everything. In his life, he said, don't look at it, look at me. Of course, he was not going to live forever, right? The look at me papacy destroyed Benedict XVI. He couldn't handle it too much. And so now we're trying to figure all of that out. And now God is giving the Pope where God says, no, don't look at, look at, the, look at the faith. Right? Don't spend your whole time looking at the Pope. Love the Pope. Pray for the Pope. Be loyal to the Pope. But don't just look, look at the faith. Look at the revelation. Look at Christ. Right? John Paul II had, if, if people didn't look at him, they would lose Christ. I believe that's absolutely true. That people would have lost sight of Christ if it wasn't for John Paul II. But the shadow side of that was, now everyone just looks at the Pope. Tell us what they do. Oh. Read your catechism, right? All the nuns used to smack the faith into you. Now they're all gone. Now you don't know anything, all right? So whose fault is that? So if I to understand that in order to understand the wisdom of God, you have to have the Holy Spirit gifted to you? Oh, no, that's a fascinating question. Do you have to have the Holy Spirit gifted to understand the wisdom of God? Essentially, yes. But the question becomes, because you have the Holy Spirit gifted to you, will you have the wisdom of God? Right, not necessarily. Because you also have to study. You're not going to get an infused knowledge of the faith. You can have the Spirit of God, absolutely. I'll give you a perfect example. Marie Ann DeWitts, who lived in some little subterranean apartment in wherever it was, you know, in the black infinity of Chicago, that great anonymous hole of urban nightmare. She lived there, right? Blind, diabetic, wheelchair bound, right? That woman had the faith. I would go and visit her. She knew what the scripture said. 
She had the creed memorized backwards and forwards and knew what it meant. Right? So that when the nice boy came and visited her with me, so funny, all right, who was a sweet, sweet kid, a really nice, nice kid, but wanted to talk to her about, oh, now we don't believe that anymore, we believe this. She knew that was all bosh and nonsense. Now, she had the Spirit of God, but also she had learned the creed. She had read, does that make sense what I'm trying to say? Please. Yes. But if you pray to the Holy Spirit, He's not necessarily going to give you the wisdom of God. But if you don't have the Holy Spirit and the wisdom of God, then what is your chance for salvation? Uh, if you don't have the Holy Spirit, your chances of salvation are in God's mind. That's the duty to preach the gospel, right? Again, St. Paul says, Romans, in the book of the Letter to the Romans, right? Those who do not believe will be saved by following the law written on their hearts, your conscience. But of course, what happens when you fault against your conscience? If you don't have the Spirit, the right, what is the Spirit of God sent in the world to do? To convict the world of sin and righteousness. That's why the Holy Spirit comes, to convict the world of sin and righteousness. So the wise person in the Holy Spirit knows they should repent of sin. They might also be learned, but I know very many learned people who are not wise. Does that make sense? Now, the best of all these is like Thomas Aquinas, right? He, he is incredibly learned and also has the Holy Spirit knows he should repent. So I read some of, in some of the mystics. One of them said that there are times when the Holy Spirit will close the mind of people to the wisdom of God purposely. Okay, I mean, mystics, this gets it, because now we're talking about people's interior life. Can God obscure someone from knowing something? Yes. Can God withhold the Holy Spirit? Certainly, yes. God's utterly free. God can do what God wants to do. So, yes, absolutely. That can all happen. So, yes, that's true. But that's, that's also true by logic. But what we cannot do is say, oh, that person is being unwise, therefore the Holy Spirit is being withheld from them. And I wanted to ask this question last week, mm-hmm. if I had a chance to. When the apostles, um, you know, after the ascension, and they went out, um, I thought I read in one of the mystics that the devil was tied up for a while, the Holy Spirit opened up the eyes, of the, that's, that's why the whole, that's why the, the religion spread so quickly. Yes, so there are a lot of commentaries on when the book of Revelation and when the book of the prophet Daniel talk about the binding of Satan. When did that happen? It is generally held in the theology of the church that yes, at the ascension of Christ and the descent of the Holy Spirit, the devil was bound or bound, chained, whatever phrase you want to use. So yeah, you'll find mystical writers who also assert that that's very much in the tradition of of the church. Now again, the problem with that is history is very right. The resurrection of Christ inherently is the defeat of Satan. Right? Those who stand in the resurrection of Christ have the defeat of Satan at hand. Quickly and easily.
Therefore, the overthrow of pagan cultures came remarkably quickly. Number one, it's not shocking that tons of Jews converted because Jesus is the Jewish Messiah and they're all the scriptures that refer to him. So, of course, the Jews would convert in large numbers because he is the Messiah. The Romans were a harder nut to crack because they had a lot of money to lose if they embraced the gospel. And it's easier for a rich man to pass, or for a camel to pass through Iodil than a rich man to go to heaven. Now, none of that is denying the binding of Satan. I'm saying the resurrection of Christ cast out the ruler of this world definitively as such. Does that make sense? It has to be personal, right? Filial comes from the word son. Son is a personal relationship. Filial correction is personal. Okay. It's not... Not a letter. Not writing a Not a public letter. No, yeah, public letters, Facebook comments, YouTube videos. That's not filial correction. By definition, it's not. It might be well-intentioned. People might mean well. They might intend good things. But no, that's not filial correction. You and I can't filial, like, I can give a filial correction to a brother priest or to my bishop. I can do that, right, and have done so. I can't give a filial correction to the Archbishop of Chicago. It's not possible. Not functionally, I mean, as such, I don't have that relationship. So on and so forth. I'm a little confused. What is filial correction? Uh, filial correction is a term means, all right, filio and filia is son or daughter, so means giving a kindly correction to someone. Okay. Someone is uh, in error. Your question and I, about the filial correction was what? What's the difference between filial correction and criticism? And criticism. Right. And I'm saying the answer to that is one is personal, one is general. The verbiage might be virtually identical, but because one is personal, it is appropriate filial Correction. I should help my brothers and sisters to do right and avoid wrong. And they should do the same for me. But that's very different. Because now, in the, which for most of human history was duh obvious. You know what I mean? You couldn't do anything else if you wanted to, right? Now everyone can tweet at whoever. Every genius with a microphone and a camera can make a YouTube video. So there you go. That's not... Filial correction, all right? Read here, Cardinal Burke's a great example of this. Cardinal Burke doesn't get on and rant and rave and tweet this and write open letters and all this, that, and the other. He does what he's supposed to do, right? Requests meeting, writes private letters, asks to be heard. You know how it is. You know this in people in your own life. You want to preach the gospel to them. You want to correct them to do wrong. If they tell you to go fly a kite, what can you do? Not much. Pray that God sends grace and light into their life. Right. That's the difference. That's the difference. The positive side of all the YouTube mania is you can you, you can learn some things. That's not so bad. But people who think they are giving correction are just vain, glorious, and mostly loudmouthed. Mm-hmm. They, they or may not be, yeah. Mean has taken on a whole new meaning these days. What do you mean to be mean? 
mean of meanness is quite extreme. Anyways. All right, we're approaching the hour. Any other questions or commentary on these or other things? And so I want to encourage this meditation on the catch of fish and the rehabilitation of Peter is something that must give us tremendous encouragement because that is the ultimate spiritual dynamic since the moment of resurrection that lives at the very heart of the church. And even though I admit we live in weird times and there's all kinds of noise and so on and so forth, we must utterly confess, if we confess the resurrection of Christ, then we must confess that the power to bring a net of fish ashore, to repent of fault and follow Christ, is dynamically and actively alive at the very heart of the church. And that is a very cheerful thing. In the name of the Father and Son of the Holy Spirit, Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. St. Peter, pray for us. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.